We've been walking through this letter, a letter, the probably the only letter that Paul wrote to a church that was doing really, really well. And so we've started to take the idea of just taking one real concept from the, the letter and really building on that uh, week by week. Last week we talked about correlation, right? Things that correlate uh, between one another. And uh, this week we're going to talk about the word exhortation. Exhortation, not a word that we use a lot, right? But I want to tell you what it's not, first of all, right? So there was a guy that was coming home from work. He lived in a, an apartment building in a big city. And, and he was coming home from work, carrying his briefcase, walked up to his building. And he noticed on the stoop of the building, there were two girls there, probably six, seven, eight years old. And they were both just crying, like wailing, crying. Uh, and the guy thinking that there was a possibility that they were hurt, sort of threw his briefcase down, ran over to him, kneeled down on the stoop and asked him, are you, are you guys okay? And the one little girl held up her doll and she said, my doll's arm has fallen off. And she was standing there, sitting there crying. Her friend was crying and she was holding the doll and she was holding the arm. And so grateful that they weren't hurt. He took the doll, he took the, the arm. And after a little bit of work, he was able to pop the arm back in and give it to the young girl. And she began to immediately stop crying, but the other girl was still crying. And so he turned to her and he said, what's wrong with you, sweetheart? And she said, nothing. She said, I was just here to cry with my friend, right? We all know what that is, right? We know that kind of support and that kind of encouragement, right? The kind of support and encouragement you need when, when it's been a hard day or you want to give up or you just, you just want somebody to sit with you while you feel miserable, right? That, that kind of support and encouragement is not what exhortation is. Exhortation is going to be more like what happens when this alarm that I set that's to remind me at 7.30 it's time to shut up and walk off the stage, right? That's more what exhortation is. Exhortation is the idea of a reminder, right? It's actually the Greek, we get it from the Greek word parakaleo, right? Which is the exact same Greek word that we use to describe the Holy Spirit, right? It's the idea actually in Greek literature used to describe a legal advocate, right? Somebody who comes beside you, somebody who speaks on your behalf, somebody who has an intimate relationship, right? Exhortation is different than encouragement. Encouragement, when you're down, when you're out, when you're weak, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're sad, encouragement, somebody pouring courage into you. Exhortation is, hey, don't forget that at 7.30 you promised the children's ministry you'd stop talking, right? And I set a reminder, and that reminder is my exhortation to not forget to do that. Chapter 4 is just that. Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians is an exhortation. Look what he says in the first couple of verses of chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. You don't have to stand, just listen to these verses. He says, finally, brothers, he said, we've instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you, right, ask you and urge you, that urge is the word exhortation, right, that we ask you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know that what instructions we gave by you, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So 
He begins the whole chapter out saying, listen, we talked to you while we were there planning your church. We, we gave you instructions of the Lord, right? The word commandment is the idea of a military directive that's to be followed. Paul taught as we try to teach you what God's commandments are, right? Now in the letter, he's not addressing major issues. He's simply exhorting people, right? As a way of reminding them by coming up beside them in an intimate relationship, one he's cultivated and he says, I want to give you some exhortations. And so we're going to simply look at the three exhortations that Paul gives this church, right? In relationship to their walk with Jesus Christ. And the goal is simple. We want you to walk in a manner that pleases God, right? Listen, your life and the way that you walk, right? The way that you move one foot in front of the other, the way you conduct your life can either please God or displease him. Did you know that? How many of you are saved by grace through faith? Say amen, right? Let's not mistake God's generosity for rescuing us and putting us in a relationship with his son, right? Or giving us a relationship to him through his son. Let's not mistake that for the idea that God doesn't have any desire for your walk to please him, right? My children's relationship with their father is secure, right? They're not going to ruin that. But can your children walk in a way that displeases you, parents? Does it often? Right? And guess what? You did to your parents as well. Right? There is a part of the Christian life that's about walking in a manner that pleases God. Paul is going to give us exhortations about some of those areas. It is a ramp, rapid fire topic in chapter 4. Right? And so here's the first... Here's the first exhortation that Paul gives us. I wrote them in my vernacular. Okay? Called to be different, not contaminated. Right? Listen to what Paul says in the, pick up verse three. Right? Here's Paul now talking about sexual purity. Right? So we're going to talk about sex, love, and grief tonight. And I was going to have a joke, but I'm afraid I'd get fired if I said it. So I'll just keep it up here, right? (laughs) You can just picture that, right? It's God's will that you should be sanctified. And we'll get to that word in a minute. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Here's what you know. That sanctification and avoiding sex morality, right, are, are, are opposite sides of the same idea. You can be sanctified or you can be sexually immoral. Right? You should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality. Right? He goes on to say that each of you, each of us, should learn how to control our own bodies in a way that's holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust, right? Like the heathen or those who don't know God. And that in this manner, no one, right? Listen, the act of controlling yourself sexually... And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men, mankind, for all such sins, as we have already told you, 
and warns you for here. And here's, here's the verse and here's the exhortation that I wrote in my language. Everybody online, everybody in here, read it with me. For God did not call us to be impure, but to, right? Listen, the first exhortation is this. We're called to be different, not contaminated. The word, the word sanctification, right? Sanctified, holy. It's, it comes from the Greek word hagon, right? And hagon in the original language meant an awful thing, an awful thing. And here's what it came to mean. That thing is so awful that it's different. And in the Bible, that word is now used over and over again to describe our relationship to God. We are to be different. Don't insert the word weird. Somebody say, that's right. Listen, being a weird Christian is complicated, right? I'm not asking you to be weird. I'm asking you to be different, right? To be set apart. And he defines in this situation that God's will of our sanctification, and he tells us exactly what it should look like. It shouldn't be impure. Everybody say the word impure. That word means to be not contaminated. Not contaminated. I went to Guatemala City on my first mission trip. Scared. Went by myself, scared out of my mind. Never left the country, never been anywhere, didn't speak Spanish. Joe just made me go, and I'm sure he'd have fired me if I hadn't, right? So I went, scared to death, right? And I didn't, listen, I didn't know anything about going to a third world country. I didn't know anything about Guatemala. I didn't know, I, I didn't know any of that. So I went in with the idea that there's a lot of contamination in the food and the water and everything around here, Right? So I made sure that while I was there those three days, I didn't eat anything I didn't bring. I lived on peanut butter crackers and bottles of water that I brought, right? Now, I was miserable by the time I got home because I didn't eat or drink anything that was there. But I was so concerned about contamination, right? Here's what Paul says. First exhortation. God's will is for you to be different not to be contaminated. And listen, God's will is for us to do a bunch of things. You can find that directive. It's just in this particular instance, God's will says we're to be sanctified. And what does that mean? Sexually pure. The Greek word for sexually immoral is pornonia. Listen to Galatians chapter 5. Actually go to Galatians 5.19. It's the third one there, David. Here's what Paul says. The acts of the sinful nature are what? Everybody understand that? Your flesh produces things that are not hard to find. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Read the first one. Sexual immorality, the Greek word pornonia. So when Paul describes our sanctification as fighting sexual immorality, read the number one thing our flesh wants to do. Be immoral. Immoral. So guess what? This is, this is a necessary reminder because this is a reminder not of a potential problem you might face as a Christian. No, no, no. This is an impending fight everybody's going to face. Everybody's going to fight and face the struggle and temptation of sexual immorality. 
And the reality is that so many people came to despise church because we never allowed for the fact that that's a real struggle in people. Whether that, whether that sexual immorality is geared towards same sex, opposite sex, whether it's about sex outside of a marriage, sex before a marriage, doesn't matter. Every person will fight that battle. Why? Because the acts of the sinful nature are what? They're obvious. That is inside of you. Your flesh desires these things and the like. So he says, here's your exhortation. Remember, you're called to be different, not contaminated, not contaminated by sexual immorality. Here's a passage. Go back to that first Corinthians six passage in verse 13. And we'll read in first Corinthians six food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Everybody said, amen. Now I can't wait. I'm serving, but God, but God will destroy both of them. The body, the body, listen to this, the body you possess is not meant for what? Right? And the Greek word there again is pornonia. It's all forms of sexual immorality. Don't just think adultery. Don't just think pornography. Porn, pornonia in that, in that time, that word was used in Greek literature to describe all kinds of immoral sex acts. He says, our body's not meant for that, but our body's meant for who? The Lord and the Lord is meant for what? Our body. He goes on in verse 15 and says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Right? Jesus is the head. We are the body. So guess what? You are connected to who? If Jesus is the head and you're the body, you're connected to who? Right? We're connected to Jesus. Your bodies are connected to Jesus. Shall they then take the members of Jesus and unite them with a what? A prostitute. Because that was prominent in Corinth. Never, he says. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in what? Body. Why? For it's said the two will become what? Sex takes two people, two identities, two personalities, and combines them into one person in front of God. Because the woman was created out of Adam's what? Rib and man was created from the dust. When men and women engage in sex, they become one in the eyes of God. That's why God allows for sex within the union of marriage, right? He goes on to say, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. He goes on and listen to this in, in uh, first Corinthians six eighteen and 20, but he who unites himself or excuse me. So here's our response. Here's our response to that struggle. Everybody say that first word. I, I don't even need to tell you what the Greek word means. You know what it means, right? Run screaming, right? Flee from what? Everybody's like, this is a right? You got to run. You got to run from it. And see, here's the problem. God designed us to be intimate with another human being. And part of that intimacy we know validates our identity. And that's called sex. But Paul says there's a sex that God allows that is God honoring. As a matter of fact, it creates one in the, in the eyes of God. And there is a sex that is immoral. So he says, flee it. 
All listen to this. This is this is crazy. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body: drinking, smoking, cussing, lying, cheating, right, gambling. You name it, they're outside of the body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Not just your body, but other people's, because we're connected in Jesus. Can I get an amen? So he says, don't know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. That means you don't have the authority. You're not sovereign. God is sovereign, right? He says, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your what? Now listen. <laughs> I've, been, I've been alive nearly six decades. Man, that's depressing. <laughs> I've been a Christian for a long time and I've been in ministry for a long time. There's not a person watching online and there's not a person in here at some season of life hasn't struggled with sexual immorality. We don't talk about it because it's dirty. We don't talk about it because it makes people uncomfortable. And listen, I don't think this is the platform for it. But the fact that we won't acknowledge what your flesh desires and we won't help you fight it simply makes it something that is secret and hidden. And that doesn't help a soul. So here's Paul's exhortation. Be sexually moral. Have sex, enjoy sex, but do it within the confines of God's instruction, within the confines of a marital relationship. Everything about outside of that is immoral. So what's your response? You've got to flee from it. He says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that what? Contaminates the body and the spirit, right? Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Here's another one. He says this in Romans 8, 12, and 13. More practical. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, a debt, right? But it's not to the sinful nature. And what's our sinful nature want to do? What's the first thing? Be sexually what? Immoral. He says our obligation isn't to that. Our obligation is, is not to live to the sinful nature according to it, but... For if you live according to the sinful nature, you're going to die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. One more. 2 Timothy 2. Why is it so important? 2 Timothy 2. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and of silver, but there are also articles of wood and clay. Some of these articles are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. That means that in the Greek, that word refers to refuse or trash, right? There are some articles that are good for compost and there are some, some things that are good for duck confit, right? It's one for honor, one for dishonor. Look what he says. If a man or a woman cleanses themselves from the latter, meaning from ignoble purposes from being used as a, as a trash can. If we will cleanse ourselves from that, he or she will be an instrument for noble purposes, right? Made wholly useful to the master and prepared for every good work. You want to know how God uses you? Take the trash out of your receptacle, clean it up and present it to God as something he can use for noble purposes. And here's the exhortation. Part of that is being sexually moral. And listen, I don't need to tell you how big a struggle that is in our world today, right? It's a massive struggle for people. 
pornography is rampant, right? And not just pornography, all kinds of, all kinds of crazy stuff. We pick one or we pick another, we make it a bigger deal than the other. That's ridiculous. It's, it's either moral sex or it's immoral sex. And God's word's really clear about what's moral, right? Now listen, here's the challenge. Here's the struggle, right? The struggle is this. Being sexually immoral won't send you to hell. Not knowing Jesus will send you to hell. Can I get an amen? But sin, listen to me. Sin can be so deceiving that it can harden your heart to the point that you could lose faith in Jesus. Now you might sit there and say, well, listen, I might be, I might be sexually immoral right now. I might be failing at this, but I haven't been deceived by it yet. I'm not hardened by it. All right. I could, t- I could give you the name of 20 people right now of over the last 10 years of people who said the same thing to me. And today, they're so far gone from Jesus, you wouldn't even recognize them because he said the same thing. Man, it doesn't take long for sin to deceive you and harden your heart to the point of being an unbeliever, right? So, man, I want to, listen, as a fellow traveler in this thing, I want to encourage you to be exhorted that God's will is for us to be different. To be different and not to be contaminated. All right. I know some of you are like, please, God, move on, right? All right. Here's the second one. Everybody read it with me. Everybody online, everybody in here, read it with me. Called to, not to, right? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 8. Therefore... He who rejects this instruction, right, does not reject man but God who gives his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, right, brotherly in the Greek is the word philos. It's the word we get Philadelphia from, right, brotherly love, right. This is about loving each other. It's about loving our neighbor. It's about loving the person next to us. About brotherly love, we don't need to write you. Man, what what a great church, right? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, he says, you do love the brothers throughout Macedonia, right? Now he goes on. Yet we urge you, right? Exhort you, right? We're not here to pour courage into you. We're here to set a daily reminder for you, right? We urge you, brothers, to do so what? More and more. Man, is there a time in our life where we need to do this more and more to love our brothers? Not in my lifetime, there never has been. He goes on to say, make it your ambition. Listen to this. For some of you, this is why you came. Make it your ambition to lead a what? That means your social media footprint should be a lot quieter. Some of your texting and phone conversations need to be quieter. That Greek word, bring that verse back up if you don't mind, David. The the Greek word for quiet means to be still. It means to be at peace. It means to be not a busybody. Lead a quiet life. Not a person that stirs up trouble all the time. And he goes on to say it. Make your ambition lead a quiet life. Listen to this. To what? Mind your... Oh my gosh. I long for a day where Christians would live in their neighborhoods and mind their own business. And here's why. This is why this winning and losing is so important. To mind your own business and to work with your hands. See, here's the problem with work, right? Or the problem with the lack of work. Sometimes people who have a lack of work become idle. And idle hands, my mom always said, or my grandma, or some crazy person in my family, right? Idle hands are the what? The devil's workshop. I never understood that. Like, 
If I'm not working in my own workshop, I'm not working in yours, right? But he said, mind your own business, work with your own hands. Why? Just as we told you, right? Listen to this. This is winning. This is winning. So that your daily life may what? The respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul said it this way in Colossians 4, 5. Listen to this. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 23. Oh, okay, go ahead. Bring that, bring that, bring that back up. There we go. I, I missed that one. Timothy says it this way. He's talking about elders, right? Men who represent God as leaders. They need to have a good reputation with outsiders. So that they, so that they, the elders, those men will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Listen, how we live around outsiders matters. Can I get an amen? It matters, right? And, and in, in first Corinthians nine, Paul says it this way. Though I am free, listen, Galatians, right? Tells us in Galatians chapter five, verse one, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Can I get an Amen. Listen, we're not bound to the law of sin and death. Here's the rule, and if you fail to do it, here's the punishment. I don't know about you, but I am grateful. We do not live in that world with God anymore. Thanks to Jesus Christ, can I get an amen? Because if you lived in a world where here's the rule, and if you fail, here's the punishment, you and I would spend most of our time in the principal's office. Can I hear a yes? Right? We don't have that relationship. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul goes on to say, I'm, I'm free to do all things. But not all things are beneficial. I'm free to do all things. I'm not going to let any of them have control over me. So he says, though I am free and I belong to no man. Listen to this. I make myself a doulos, a slave, an indentured servant to who? Come on, say it. To everyone. You want to know what's hard about Christianity? What's hard about Christianity isn't growing up and living in America in 2021 when everything's falling apart. What's hard about being a Christian is that right there. You want to know what makes Christianity hard? Is look around this room and ask yourself, how many of these people are you willing to be an indentured servant to? I mean, most of us struggle with being an indentured servant to the people who roam the halls of our house. That's what makes Christianity hard. Oh yeah, we can get caught up in all the hubbub of the 30,000 foot view and all the arguments at the government level and all the arguments about all this, but this right here is Christianity. I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. Not arguments. We're not trying to win as many arguments as possible. We're trying to win as many people as possible. And you know how we do that? We live in a manner that doesn't cause people to stumble. Because Paul goes on to say this. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. Why? Because I'm not like Paul believed everything they said. I do it. Why? To win the Jews. To win them to who? Jesus, Paul could have spent his life arguing with the Jews and trying to win an argument. He didn't care. I want to win them to Jesus. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. Why? Though I myself not under the law, why? So as to win those under the law. He goes on to say this. I make myself a servant. He said to those not having the law, right? Like I became like one not having the law, though I am not, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Why? So as to win those not having the law. He goes on to say, to the weak, I become weak. Why? To win the weak. To the strong, 
right? Or I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. We're way too concerned about too many things, Christians. We're concerned about winning fights. We're concerned about being heard. We're concerned about making our point. We're concerned about everything other than this. Though I am free, I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? Because winning is more important than losing when it comes to people. It's just more important. And Paul said, here's an exhortation. When you're cruising around your little town, church of Thessalonica, live in such a way that doesn't cause people to stumble. Here's, listen, it's our verse. Or or, or listen to 1 Corinthians, um, was that 1 Corinthians 19 we just read? Yes. This is Tomoka's theme verse, Acts 15, 19. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult or trouble those who are from outside of the faith for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Listen, I can. Sh- I live. I live in this country with you. I own a phone and a TV and the internet, and I see what's happening in our world today. And I can commiserate with with some of your frustrations and feelings, and we can talk about it all we want. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is about winning souls to Jesus. This is about making sure that people find themselves in a right relationship with Jesus. This is not about them agreeing with you. This is not about them seeing everything the way you see it. This is about making sure that you and I do whatever we have to do to not make it hard for people to come to Jesus. We say it this way. We exist to make it hard for people to go to hell from this generation. You want to know what makes it hard for people to go to hell? Stop causing them to stumble over you. I don't know. Last night we got an email from the people who own the apartment, the apartment complex. And they said, hey, we're going to do the, we're going to power wash your building this, this morning. So get your trash can in and get your rug in, right? So I brought the trash can in last night. I brought the rug in. And of course the rug's filthy. It's dirty. I don't want to lay it inside. So I lay it on the rug inside of the front door. Here's the problem. When I laid it on the rug inside of the front door, it was about that much taller than the other rug. And so guess what? When I walked up to the rug, guess what I did this morning? I tripped over it. Now, you want to watch something comical, try to watch a 57-year-old man catch himself before he falls, right? Everybody knows how frustrating it is to just be going somewhere and something get in the way and you trip over it. It's frustrating. Trying to walk through the, trying to walk through your home and the stupid dog that you let your daughter buy is underneath your feet, right? And as you turn, you almost trip over it, kill it, or fall into the wall and break your neck, right? Terrible options, right? When you get a toddler who begins to walk, and all of a sudden they're all over the place and underneath your feet, and you're walking through, the, you're walking through your house, and all of a sudden you turn and there's this two-year-old on your heels, and you try to fall to where you don't land on them because you're 260 pounds, right? Listen, trying to move from point A to point B when there are obstacles in the way is frustrating. Imagine being a person far from God and trying to find your way to God and to get there, they got to get over you. Do you really want to be the reason why people have a hard time finding God? Listen, I think we ought to be more concerned about winning than losing. And here's what Paul said you do. Get to work. Stop being a busybody, right? Be quiet and love your neighbor. And here's what he says. Do it in your own freedom and put yourself as an indentured servant to those people. You want to solve most of your problems? 
start being a servant to other people, you will realize pretty quickly how quickly God's grace heals you in that process. It just makes all the difference in the world. And the last exhortation is this. We're called to hope and not despair. Hope and not despair. 1 Thessalonians 13 through 18. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant. Four times Paul, four times Paul exhorts his readers about not being ignorant, right? He said, I want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. It's a euphemism and falling asleep means those who are what? Dead, right? It was a common phrase in writings back then. It's commonly used through scripture. Jesus used it to describe Nazareth, right? Lazarus has fallen asleep and the disciples were like, well, if we're just going to wake him up for a nap, right? And Jesus like, no, Lazarus is dead, right? He said, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, right? Here's the principle, verse 13, or to grieve or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Here's the exhortation. The exhortation is for hope. Right? And not despair. For hope and not despair. Why should a Christian have hope when it comes to death? I talked to one of our pastors today. Actually, I got a text from him. He spent his whole afternoon in the hospital today. Visiting people who are sick. People who are part of our family here. Or people who are part of our family that have family members that are sick. Today, for the first time, he sensed the overwhelming despair within the halls of the hospital. And he said in his text, today's the first day I saw a nurse go down a hallway and just sort of hide her head and cry after she had cleaned out the room of the latest patient who died from COVID-19. There's a lot of despair in our world today. And people who are living through this, whether it's because of family members, friends, or those who are serving on the front line as first responders and healthcare workers, the despair is overwhelming. People are dying we don't even have places to put them in the morgue. We're, 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 we're putting up makeshift morgues to watch over people and care for people because people are dying. And the reality is we haven't even begun to see the long-term effects of what COVID-19 has done to our, our, our world. Because these people don't have time to grieve. They don't have time to process what they're dealing with. They don't have time to process what they're seeing. All they got to do is they got to get right back the next day and they got to suit up and they got to get back in there. Right? But grief, man, and again, this isn't, this isn't Paul forecasting a potential future problem. Like, hey, Larry, Hurricane Larry's out there in the, in the water and he may or he may not show up. This isn't that, right? This is Hurricane Matthew barreling down on Ormond and it's inevitable. And here's what he says. You're going to face grief. Nobody, nobody in here, nobody online is avoiding grief. It's not happening. And here's the exhortation. Hope, not despair. And listen, we're, he's going to talk specifically about death. I want to remind you, we grieve over a lot of things. We grieve over loss of jobs. We grieve over losses, re, lost relationships. We grieve over lost loves. We grieve over lost... Uh, uh, Money we leave over, we, we, we grieve over lots of lost homes, right? Lost restaurants that close. We grieve over everything, right? Now listen, I had plans for tonight after service. They got ended. I had to grieve for a second. And you're going to say, well, that's stupid. No, it's not. It's human nature. I have this thing. It gets changed. I got a little pain. I got to process it. I'm over it. Well, maybe I'm not completely over it. I don't know, right? But we grieve. And here's the thing. We either grieve well with hope. 
or we grieve with despair. And the problem is there are too many people who are stuck grieving in despair. They won't let go. And here's the thing. If you can't let go and grieve well to the point of acceptance, everything about you begins to be tainted by that feel. Everything about you begins to be colored by that despair. And you may put on a brave face and you may act strong and you may speak the right words, but inside you're dying. And Paul says there's hope. Here's what he says. Listen to the hope that we have. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Can I get an amen? Right? Come on, man. How many of you actually believe that? Right? Jesus died, rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have what? Those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who have died knowing Jesus. I'm thinking about my mom. Right? Faithful for many years. Passed away We five, five years ago next Wednesday. My mom will have passed. And according to the Lord's own word, we'll tell you, we tell you that we who are still alive... And who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. Listen to this. For the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven. And he's going to come with a loud command. We don't know what he's going to say. My guess is he's going to say, blow the trumpet. Right? He's going to say something and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead, my mom, will rise what? She's going to come back. She's going to come back first. It says this. After that, we who are still alive and are left, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. And here's what he says. Listen to this. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Listen. Grief is inevitable. It's just inevitable. I... I am convinced that there is nothing that we were less prepared for as human beings than to grieve. When God made us, when God made Adam and Eve in the garden, God's intent in their perfection was to live for ever. Perfect in eternal state. When sin entered the world, the first thing they had to do was they had to learn how to grieve. Men and women were not made in the image of God to know grief at all. And it is, to, in my 30 plus years of ministry, it is the number one reason why people fail. Because when you're stuck in a perpetual state of despair, from whatever that loss is, and listen, I'm not talking to you as somebody that hasn't experienced this. I've experienced it on the death side. I've buried a, a, a son who lived today. I've buried a dad at 49 years of age who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I've buried friends. I've buried best friends. I've married my mother. I've buried, I've been, and I've stood by the graveside. I've stood at the hospital bed and I've watched hundreds of people pass. I've lost relationships. I've been divorced. I've lost jobs. I've been fired. I've been evicted. I had my apartment locked up and my stuff kept from me. I've suffered all kinds of losses in my lifetime. I know grief. And here's what I know about grief. We weren't built for it. We weren't built for it. Why do you think parents struggle so much when their kids go away to college? You know, we make it something so sweet. It's called an empty nest. No, it's called I'm dying. I'm dying on the inside without them. Right? You raise these people, you despise them for years, they become somebody you can tolerate, and then they leave you. Right? 
Is parenting not the worst equation in the world? It's horrible. Meanwhile, they're in Tampa going, I'm having a great time. Well, good for you, right? Maybe if I cut off the money supply, you'd come home, right? Whatever. Sorry. Working a little, working a little therapy out here today. So thank you. Thank you. But listen, in this particular case, you can read second, second Thessalonians two, one and three tells you why they were struggling with it concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with, with him. We ask you brothers, right? Don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by, alarmed by some prophecy. Can I just say that to you? Stop being freaked out by stupid stuff you see on the internet. Okay? The Bible says this. Bring that verse back up if you don't mind, David. Don't be unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Right? Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will come. Listen to this. The day of Jesus will come, won't come until... Won't come until what? The rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is what? Revealed. We gotta stop stupid stuff. The Bible tells us when he's coming and none of that stuff's happened. So don't be telling me that in October or November he's coming. That ain't happened. And until that happens, he ain't coming. Right? This may be a precursor to that, but this hasn't happened yet. Right? But here's what he said. These people were concerned that people they loved and died weren't, come, weren't going to be okay. They weren't going to be taken care of. They weren't going to be with Jesus. He said, calm down. Right? And here's what he said. When you grieve people that you lose, you can have hope. Listen, you can't, you can't have enough hope to avoid ever grieving. You, you're going to grieve. We hate it. We will do anything to avoid it. Right? Just, just pretend it doesn't exist. Let's, let's just get buried in our work. Right? Let's become consumed with something else that keeps us from it. Let's just be funny. Or let's drink all the time. Or let's do drugs. Let's do whatever we can to offset the misery that I don't want to deal with my grief. The problem is, the problem is, is that the world we live in requires us to grieve. What God has done is equipped us with hope and not despair. Right? Nobody likes grieving. Nobody likes losing. Nobody likes that. And we weren't built for that. The one thing that I want my staff to learn to do is I want them to learn to be great grief counselors. Because we change stuff around here all the time. And you know what happens when we go through change? People get upset. And you know why they get upset? Because they got to grieve something. If we took the chairs out of this middle section tonight... And you come back in here next Wednesday and there's pews in here. How many of you would have a problem with that? Right? Some of you would. Some of you would. Some of you would be like, I hate this. This is the dumbest thing this church has ever done. Right? Why? You care less about a pew because some of you went and sat in pews for years. Here's what you hate. You hate the loss it created. The change created the loss and now the loss creates a little bit of pain. You saw what we do? We grieve the pain. You gotta learn how to get through it. You gotta, and here's the thing. God equipped us to get through it by giving us hope. Hope is an anchor that we are connected to that no matter what happens around us, we never, ever, ever go untethered. And we have an anchor. God will comfort us 
in our grief. He's near those who are brokenhearted, right? But listen, the exhortation is to Paul, from Paul is this, hope and not despair. Let me end this. December 7th, 1941. No more famous words were spoken on that day than these words. Don't worry about it. You see, on the morning of December the 7th, it was a Sunday. And in Oahu, on the northern shore of Oahu was a radar station. And inside that radio station was an experienced radar man and a young man who had been there for just one day after a half a day of training. His name was George Elliott. George was on a 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. shift watching this radar screen. This is George. George's job was to watch the radar screen. At 6.54 of his first morning manning this station with a half a day of training, he was told through a phone call, shut the radar off. Being a young man who was nervous, he wanted to keep it on. And at 7.01 on the morning of December 7th, he noticed a massive blip on the radar. He told the other man in the booth with him about it. And eventually through time and effort, he got that guy to make a phone call, right, to a man named Tyler Kermit. Tyler was, a, was with the Army Air Force First Lieutenant on temporary duty at Fort Shafter's radio information on the morning of December 7th. He didn't get the call. They told him about it, and he called back. And when he talked to Mr. Elliot, who saw the blip on the radar, and George Elliott's job was to monitor the blips on the radar, and he knew from tracking them, this was the biggest blip they had seen. When he told Tyler Kermit, this is what I've seen, Tyler Kermit issued the words that were made famous in the movie, Torah, 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 don't worry about it. Eventually that blip was last seen on the radar at 739. Little did Anybody, especially Tyler Kermit, who would later say in an interview, there are times I wake up at night, you know, in a cold sweat from remembering that day. Little did they know that that blip was 139 Japanese bombers who began to rain down one of the greatest attacks on our nation's soil ever. Why? Because somebody ignored the reminder. Somebody ignored the warning. Listen. The Bible's full of commandments. The Bible's full of encouraging words. But sometimes the Bible's full of warnings. And Paul gives those. Not to a church that's struggling. I'm not giving it to you as a person that's potentially struggling. I'm giving it to you as a warning. We're called to be different. Not contaminated. We're called, right? We're called to win and not lose. And we're called to hope and not despair. Man, I'm encouraging me, encouraging you. Don't ignore those exhortations. Let's pray. God, thank you for for reminding us. And thank you those reminders don't come with condemnation. They come in hopes that we'll continue to do well and we'll continue to do better. That ultimately what we become will be something you can use to a greater glory to win more to Jesus. 
So I'm just grateful, Father, for your spirit that I know is at work when your word is preached. And I pray, Father, for the word that I also know serves a purpose when it's put forth. So I pray those two entities will accomplish their purposes tonight. And ultimately, Lord, we will do even more and even better than we've been currently doing. I thank you for these folks. Would you bless would you bless them and watch over them, Father? And most importantly, would you use them to help lead others to Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. God bless your church.